Hi everyone, I'm Rochelle Lake, Head of B2B Marketing at SV Australasia. Welcome to episode one of our four-part podcast series, Think Sustainable. In this series, I'll be joined by two new guest experts each episode, and together we'll discuss the impact sustainable business practices have on the environment, workplace, culture, and brand reputation. So today, I'm joined by Jeff Vickers, who's the Technical Director at ThinkStep, and ThinkStep have a team of sustainability experts that work with clients to help them achieve their sustainability goals. And Ian Shepherd, uh, one of my colleagues, who's the Manager of Technical and Quality at SD's manufacturing site at Kaurau in New Zealand. So our focus today is going to be on how organisations such as ThinkStep partner with organisations um, to tackle climate change. We'll chat through some common goals uh, organisations may have when it comes to climate change, and we'll also talk about some practical actions that you can implement to achieve your targets. So just by way of opening, I'll get both of you to introduce yourselves. Um, and we'll start with you, Jeff. Can you explain what your current role is and what experience you've had working on sustainability throughout your career? And also what experience you've had on climate related projects specifically? Thanks, Rochelle. So my name is Jeff Vickers. My, my role is Technical Director of ThinkStep ANZ. And in that role, I guess I work on you know, our mission as an organization is helping other organizations to succeed sustainably. Um, and so I've got about 16 years experience working in the fields of life cycle assessment, corporate carbon footprinting, product carbon footprinting, and sustainable product design. And through my experience within ThinkSip, where I've been for the past 12 years, and prior to that, you know, I've largely been working with organizations, with industry associations, and with government to try and help really identify what matters. So where are the the, you know, how, how do you measure carbon? How do you measure sustainability? How do you measure other environmental impacts? That kind of thing. Like, how, how do you get that kind of quantification there? And then once you've got a baseline, once you know where you're starting from, how do you then work to reduce that and, you know, uh, minimize damage while also uh, improving your bottom line, improving the positive things that your organization contributes to society? Uh, so, yeah, I've worked, you know, had the privilege of working with a lot of large companies over, over the years and, um, and I guess in terms of my focus on carbon and climate change specifically, I guess carbon is one of those issues that is kind of overriding. You know, if we don't get climate change right, then a lot of other things don't really matter, as sad as that is to say. You know, that, that when, you're, when you're doing life cycle assessment, you're always considering a whole range of different environmental impacts, whether it's acidification or, you know, uh, you know smog or waste or, you know, energy use and how that influences other things. Water footprinting, there's so many things that we can consider but if we don't get the climate right, if we don't get you know a, a survivable climate for us to exist as a society, then unfortunately a lot of the other things fall out of the you know out of the mix as being important. And so I think that's why there's such an overriding priority on on climate change um, and why it's such a focus for organisations globally. Awesome, thanks, Jeff. I think you're very well qualified to join our conversation today. We're really happy to have you here. So Ian, same sort of questions to you, but I'm also wondering if you can maybe just uh, by way of introducing yourself, also let people know what's what's in the background of, of uh, your picture there. Sure, Rochelle. Hi, Rochelle, and hi, everybody else. Uh, so my name is Ian Shepherd. I'm the technical manager at ASETI's uh, paper mill in Kaurau, New Zealand. And um, behind me is the view from my office, uh, which is the river uh, Tarawera which is the river where we take our water from to make paper. So it's a beautiful river. I'm very lucky to have such a good view. So yes, I'm the technical manager here in uh, Kaurau, New Zealand. Uh, a 
tissue mill where we make tissue and towel products uh, from pulp all the way through to the finished product. I've been working here in New Zealand for 15 years uh, and prior to that I was making tissue products uh, around Europe um, as well. So I've got quite a lot of experience in tissue manufacture and throughout my career I've been continually working on energy reduction projects, uh, water reduction projects, uh, both from an from a environmental or sustainable point of view, but also there's a financial benefit to us as well if we can do these things properly. Uh, and more recently, uh, been more involved in energy switching projects. And that's where we're trying to switch um, our thermal energy from, uh, from fossil fuels into something much more sustainable, which in our case is geothermal steam. So here in Kara, we're very lucky to be uh, situated on top of a geothermal steam field. So rather than burning fossil fuels to generate our thermal heat, we can use direct geothermal steam with a significantly better carbon footprint. Excellent. Well, thanks guys. Um, so let's get right into it um, and really start talking about this whole topic of climate change. So to start off with you, Jeff, why do you think tackling um, climate change is a common sustainability target um, for your, you know, for Big Step customers and, and in general organisations at large. Yeah, well, I think sort of for the reasons I mentioned before, I think climate change is one of those overriding issues. You know, if we don't get climate change and carbon footprinting right, then a lot of other things don't matter as much because um, we need to have a survivable climate for for us all to operate within. I think also the the other sort of benefit with, with carbon footprinting and with climate change is there's much better frameworks for measurement out there. So there's the greenhouse gas protocol, you know, there's targets again for the science-based targets initiative. There's all the other developments that are kind of around that. And there's been a lot of work that's been done by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, for many years to create really good and robust measurement methods. And so what that means is that we have a really clear framework for how we measure, you know, create benchmarks and then also assess improvement within organizations and within products and services. And so I think the combination of that kind of overriding significance as an environmental issue, plus the drivers of having, you know, things like the science-based targets initiative where companies are signing up and actively trying to reduce emissions, um, that's helping to put pressure right down through entire supply chains, which is fantastic, you know, People, consumers are more aware of, of climate change as an issue now, I think, as well, which is really helpful. And I think all of those sort of things are working together to really make climate change kind of the overriding uh, priority for us to consider as an environmental issue. And that's not taking away from all the other many other, you know, relevant and important environmental issues, but it is one that's inherently more measurable, better standardized, and for which there are kind of better frameworks where everyone can work together to kind of achieve success collectively. Yeah, makes makes good sense. And um I know in our business um, across Australia and New Zealand, we, we do a bit of research to understand sustainability goals that organisations have across Australia and New Zealand. And I'd have to say that uh, companies that do have goals, I would almost be 100% of them that would have a, a, a climate change related goal. So what are some of the actual goals that um, companies typically have, Jeff? Well, typically most companies are trying to meet targets by the year 2030 and by the year 2050. So typically you have a reduction goal um, by 2030 and then you have a, often a net zero goal by 2050 tends to be the way that companies and governments go. Largely that's influenced by things like the science-based targets initiative. It's influenced by things like the, you know, the Paris agreement that all, um, you know, major countries have signed up to. So it's those sorts of goals tend to filter down. So typically it's a, a reduction by um, 2030 and then a, you know, hopefully net zero commitment by 2050 seems to be the common kind of theme. 
Um, exactly how far organizations decide they want to go by 2030 is up to them. If they're signed up to the science-based science initiative, there's a minimum. Um, if you want to be aligned with the you know 1.5 degree warming um, threshold, but you know generally speaking, that you know it's up to those companies to decide how far they want to go and how fast. And I guess it's also uh, partly dependent on how not only how ambitious they are, but also how much room they think they have to move. Mm. Some for some industries, it's much easier to decarbonize than for others. Um, some sectors are naturally harder to abate. Um, and so, you know, they probably have less flexibility to move in the short term by 2030, but maybe more more so by, by 2040, 2050. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and as I said, um, in our research, definitely a lot of carbon uh, reduction targets, but um, we also see some targets around renewable energy targets specifically and also energy intensity. So I guess that's just trying to actually reduce the amount of energy used in, in industries too. So um, yeah, I said plenty of plenty of things that organizations are trying to, to work on in, in this space. So Jeff, when you get involved with clients, what are some of the, the key steps that you take to help clients achieve their, their goals or targets in this area? Yeah. So the first thing that we've been involved in for the last five to 10 years is really helping companies with measurement first. So typically our advice is always you need to kind of quantify and measure something before you can really set any realistic targets. Because if you don't know what your emissions are, you don't know where what we call the hotspots are, so where the, the key contributors are, um, and you don't know sort of in what part of your business or organizational products lifecycle they're occurring. So are they on-site emissions or are they occurring upstream in your supply chain or downstream in the use of the products? If you don't have that kind of knowledge upfront, then setting targets is sort of somewhat meaningless. So. I guess the focus that we've had over the past decade has really been helping with that measurement part first and whether that's at the company level or whether that's the level of a product or service it depends on the type of you know company and the type of you know organization that we're dealing with as to which is more important and maybe it's both um so first is really that measurement piece and then it's working out okay once you've measured it you know where your hotspots are it's trying to sort of understand how much ability you have to influence those things sometimes you can influence something but it's not important you know, it's not going to make the big difference to your to your to your footprint. You might still choose to do something about it because it might motivate your employees, um, but it's perhaps not going to achieve the big thing that you want. And sometimes you might have something that's you know high impact. It has a big influence on your footprint, but it's outside of your direct control or even your indirect control. In which case, you have to then look at your business model. And so, I guess I try to think of it as two parts: one is ability to influence, and the other is significance to your footprint. And that doesn't mean you should just focus on the ones that are both significant and you have a high ability to influence. But it does mean that that's perhaps a good place to start. You know, if you can influence it and it's a high impact, then that's a good place to focus your limited resources. And then maybe you also focus on the ones that you can influence that have a lesser contribution because they might then really help your employees remain motivated. You know, it might be around employee commuting or it might be around you know waste reduction on site. It may not have the biggest contribution to your footprint, but it can really help in terms of employee engagement, which can then help you know everyone to be kind of aware and motivated. Well, thanks, Jeff. That's some really practical suggestions there. So, Ian, do you have anything that you want can sort of add to the conversation here in relation to Essity's approach to our climate targets? Well, I think, uh, as, as Jeff mentioned, uh, the, the uh, science-based targets that have been uh, launched, and so Essity Global have they have joined up to this scheme, and so our science-based target, the scope one and two, uh, the near-term target for 2030 is a reduction of 35% uh, and, a, and a corresponding reduction for scope three of 18%. And then we have a long-term commitment uh, like the rest to, to, to be net zero scope one, two, and three 
by 2050. And that's that for a paper manufacturer is a big challenge. Uh, that that's not an easy target to hit by any by any means. We have some ability here in New Zealand with our, our unique um, carbon footprint geothermal steam that we can do something. Uh, but to get really get to net zero, that's a that's a hell of a challenge. And to to achieve that, um, SAT are working uh, with paper machine suppliers to develop new new methods of paper manufacture to actually change how we how we make paper because that's going to be required to actually reach that that very very challenging target but it's it's great to work for a company that has set goals as challenging as they may be yes yeah and um i think something that's important to note too when it comes to paper making is, is that um you know and that's whether it's cardboard or paper or tissue it's actually one of the most energy intensive industries uh, out there so as you said Ian is quite we use a lot of energy in this industry so it's a, it's it's a, it's a big it's a big challenge um, but yeah for it. <laughs> yeah exactly and then on our, on our side here in Carroll uh, we've already made significant improvements in our carbon emissions when we when we turned off our gas-fired boilers and started using geothermal steam instead we made a reduction of something like 37 percent uh, reduction in greenhouse gas emissions and then uh, we have very big plans which uh, are happening. We've purchased the equipment. We'll be rebuilding one of our paper machines and complete, completely removing the, the combustion of fossil fuels from that paper machine. We'll be doing that next year in mid-24, and that will give us a further 23% reduction in carbon emissions. So we're really doing everything we can here to reduce our carbon footprint uh, to help meet these science-based targets. Yeah. Fantastic examples to share. So, Jeff, how do you think um, that suppliers can can help? Um, and I'm not sure whether that's mainly around scope three emissions or touching on yeah, where you think where do suppliers come in? Yeah, well, I think uh, depending on the organisation type, you, you often find that a lot of your emissions are in your supply chain. So, when you if you kind of break the economy down, the primary producers like ST, but also like steel manufacturers or food producers or or the ones who are closer to the kind of start end of turning you know raw materials from the ground um, into products those manufacturers tend to be the most energy intensive you know you've got the most thermal energy use you've got process related emissions from chemical process you've got high electricity intensity all of those things kind of combine to mean that you have quite high direct emissions what get called scope one and scope two emissions from a carbon footprinting perspective so if you're looking at the sort of start end of a supply chain that's typically where you see you know the bulk of the emissions being inside the organization itself but as you move further down a supply chain, you move more towards the service-based organizations, organizations that are buying other products and services from other companies. You tend to find that their direct emissions, their scope one and two emissions, so that you know combustion of natural gas to heat the office or the use of electricity for lighting or whatever it happens to be, those things become quite small in relation to what gets called the scope three emissions, which is all the sort of stuff in the value chain. So, you know, scope three tends to get divided into the sort of upstream part, the stuff that you're kind of buying in, and the downstream part in terms of what happens after your organization um, is finished with its, you know, product or service. And so I think it's really, really crucial as you move further down a value chain that that's where you need to have this partnership. You know, you need to be working with your suppliers to decarbonize because it might be that only, um, 
you know, 5% of your emissions are direct, uh, scope one and two, and the other 95% uh, upstream. I was giving a presentation earlier today where it was 99%. It's more than 99% of the emissions are in scope three and less than 1% uh, um, are the direct scope one and two emissions. And so I think it's just really important to first understand that. And then it's important to work with like-minded suppliers who are measuring who are able to provide information, who are able to provide a pathway to decarbonize. I don't think you necessarily have to pick winners. You know, that's not necessarily what I'd encourage people to do where you go, oh, their carbon footprint's a little bit less than theirs and so we'll go with them. For me, it's more important that you choose suppliers with similar values who can demonstrate they are measuring things and have a commitment and they've got a clear path of action to decarbonize because I think as a society, we all need to work together to decarbonize. Picking winners doesn't necessarily help that because it doesn't help the people who you're already working with to do even better. You know, it just means that you're choosing someone who's got a slightly lower footprint already. And that might be just as a, a factor of where they're based, you know, um, because they've got a lower carbon electricity mix or they've got whatever just by net by, you know, by just pure coincidence of where they're located. And so I think from my perspective, it's really about working in your supply chain. You can definitely change suppliers to ones who are more committed. But I think it's also about working with the suppliers you already have to try and help bring their footprint down and, and then to you know share that information through the supply chain so that you're all measuring stuff in the same way. And then information can be passed through so that when you can get to that scope three carbon footprinting, you can say, okay, hey, you know, we can show that we're reducing over time. And here's how we're moving towards our 2030 commitments. Here's how we're moving towards our you know, net zero commitment by 2050 so that we're all working together in a kind of chain to support each other. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. And um, Ian, do you think that there's, um, from a tissue manufacturing point of view, that there's specific things that suppliers can, can help with when it comes to climate change? Well, I think there's perhaps two points I'd make. The first one being that, uh, that you've already mentioned is that a tissue manufacturer, like all paper manufacturers, is an energy intensive uh, process. Uh, so you will use a lot of energy uh, to, to make the paper product. But you can really choose uh, the energy source uh, to limit your climate impact. So if I was looking for a, a, a supplier, I'd most definitely look for a, a supplier that had had a good energy source, a low carbon energy source. But I'd also pick up on Jeff's point about um, a supplier that actually measures their carbon impact and has a concrete plan to reduce it. So with both life cycle assessment and EPDs, environmental product declarations, you can really, a supplier can show you exactly what their carbon footprint is and where their carbon hotspots are. And so if you, if you can get that information, that can allow you to make an educated choice about uh, a supplier's carbon footprint. Yeah, makes sense, makes sense. So next I wanted to move to talking about um, greenwashing. So we know that the consumer regulators in both Australia and New Zealand, so that's the ACCC in Australia and the New Zealand Commerce Commission in New Zealand, are really increasing their focus on misleading and unsubstantiated sustainability claims. And in fact, the ACCC did an online review of 247 businesses earlier this year and found that 57% of them made concerning environmental claims. So it's really... Um, yeah, it's obviously something that, that's a challenge. Um, and that's a real challenge for consumers and businesses um, to know what's true and what's not true. Um, so Ing, could you tell us a bit about what some of the potential greenwashing traps that organisations can look out for, avoid or try to avoid when it comes to climate change and tissue products? 
Yeah, sure. There's, there's a few I could mention. Uh, one of the first ones would be uh, if an organization cherry picks uh, particular environmental impacts that they have and only focuses on that as opposed to completing a full life cycle assessment, which looks at the overall impact. So you can be very, very good in one field, which might be quite minor. Uh, and so if you're only promoting that, that, that to my mind is greenwashing. You need to look at the overall. Uh, another another one, which is a particular pet hate of mine in, in our industry, is if a supplier or an importer completes carbon footprinting on their office functions and doesn't include in any way the actual manufacturer of the paper. Because in our industry, all of our carbon footprint or the vast, vast majority of it is tied in with the manufacturer of the paper. So I think it's really important that you consider the whole supply chain not simply the front office uh, that may be selling the paper. And finally, I think it's important when making environmental claims that you, you don't just use in generic example data, but you're actually making claims based on something specific to the site or in the region where your production is based. Because we can see big differences between different sites and different regions. So it, it, it's, not, it's not fair to use a generic industry data you need to have data relevant to the exact site where the product is made yeah spot on spot on ian and um i guess that is part of the challenge for organizations today is not all businesses have done their life cycle homework and their life cycle analysis so um yeah you've definitely got to look out for avoiding that they just take something generic if they haven't done their own homework yet so and do you have anything to add from from your point of view on greenwashing and what to what to look out for yeah, I mean, the advice that I always give is just to be specific. I think the trap that a lot of companies fall into is they make generic sweeping claims. So they go, oh, our product's, you know, most sustainable, more sustainable, or it's greener, or it's, you know, less environmentally harmful or, or whatever. And the problem is, is that, that those claims are very, very hard to support because they're very, very vague, you know, whereas you could say, you know, our product has a, has a lower carbon footprint because we've done these particular things or we've reduced waste by doing this or whatever. You know, I think there's a, there's a trap to fall into of, of calling something sustainable. And the reality is, is what is sustainable? You know, there's even this, this international standard for self-declared environmental claims says you can't call products sustainable for that very reason because we don't know how to measure it properly yet. You know, there, there are too many different component parts. You know, when you're talking about sustainability, you could be talking about carbon footprint or waste or toxicity or, you know, acidification or smog creation, or you could be talking about all kinds of different things. You're also be talking about social issues. Um, and so there's just so many different component parts that, you know, it, it, it's, it's you know, always nice to say, oh, it's more sustainable because the easier claim to make, but it's, it's one that's very, very hard to back up. And so I would always encourage companies to do things that are specific. You know, we've increased the amount of renewable energy that we've used by doing this. You know, we've lowered our carbon footprint because we did X, Y, and Z. We've reduced our waste by doing these things. You know, this contributes a 30% reduction across our entire life cycle. You know, making claims that are based on thing, real things that are measurable rather than kind of nice sounding things that are it's greener, it's more sustainable, it's whatever. That's nice, but it, you know, you can't kind of support it, you know, better to be, it's got more recycled content or it's more renewable energy content or, or whatever, because those things are meaningful and measurable and can be tracked. Yeah. Yeah. No, very well said, Jeff. Very well said. So maybe um, Ian, by way of example, could you um, provide, yeah, provide an example of reducing climate impact from a, an SED carrier point of view and some specific things that we've been doing? 
Uh, we've been doing many, many uh, energy saving projects uh, through my time here in the Kaurau Mill. Uh, just last year, we installed a, a vacuum blower that, that uh, reduced our electricity energy um, use by something like um, 670 households um, on an annual basis. So we're continually uh, looking to reduce our energy uh, use and therefore our climate impact. But really, uh, when, when we're talking about Carol, I've said it before, but I'll, I'll say it again, it's our, our choice and our, our, the opportunity we have to use geothermal steam, to use a low carbon energy source. And as we switch more, more of our energy to this geothermal steam, we're making huge savings in carbon footprint. Yes, we're certainly in a, a unique situation um, where, where the mill is located there in New Zealand and uh, it's really unique in, in the world um, with what we do with papermaking. So it's something that we're really proud of. So let's, next, let's get on to some practical actions that organisations can take to achieve their climate targets. So um, can I start off with you first, Jeff? What are, what are three practical things you think that organisations can do? Yeah, I think the first thing is really to put a good measurement program in place, um, because if you don't know, you know, where you are and where you're starting from, then it's impossible to know if you're improving or not. So I think you need to have a really, really robust measurement framework in place, measuring not only your own direct emissions and your emissions from electricity, but also the scope three emissions that we talked about in your supply chain and downstream of you. So that getting that really well defined good measurement around it potentially if you're a bigger organization getting it independently assured you know going through that whole process to have a really really robust um, baseline in place and then I think it's about identifying where the hotspots are so as I mentioned before it's you know those areas that are both impactful and you have the ability to influence if those are the ones you can then focus on and then it's really trying to identify what you can do about them so you know generally speaking for most organizations uh, you know, well, it depends on the type of organization, but if you're a manufacturer, it's typically things like it's your thermal energy, the point that Ian brought up before. If you're, you know, depending on what you're making, it could be chemical process emissions where a chemical reaction releases carbon dioxide, for example, or methane or some other greenhouse gas, um, or it could be your use of electricity. Um, potentially, it also could be purchased goods and services as well. And so it's looking at all of these kind of points and saying, okay, well, what are the ones that are important for us? And what can we do about them? Can we buy renewable electricity, you know, through a through a certification scheme? Could we put on-site renewables in? Could we, you know, do more stuff with um, biofuels, for example, to make our um, thermal energy more renewable, for example? So it's looking at all of those things and just trying to put a program in place of, okay, we've got a measurement system in place. We know where our hotspots are. Work out where we can, you know, materially influence them, either directly or by working with our suppliers, and then by putting programs in place to help you kind of track towards the goal that you've got for 2030 or, or 2050. Thank you. And Ian, again, just to bring it down to more the, the hygiene tissue level, what uh, what do you think are some practical steps that organisations can take? Well, I, I think the key thing is, and we've touched on it before, is, is uh, to ask for those life cycle assessments or environmental product declarations. If you can find a company that has this data, You'll, you'll know that they've at least put some thought into measuring their, their carbon footprint and the carbon footprint of their products and the entire environmental impact of their products. And so if you can, if you can choose a company that has done that, they should have therefore plans to, to improve that impact and to reduce that impact. And then if you can find two companies, then you can then compare products to see you know, which, com which company or which product does have the, the best uh, or the lowest carbon carbon footprint or overall environmental impact. 
So definitely ask for the data uh, and then work with a company that can that can provide that data and work to lower your carbon your carbon footprint overall. But then I'd also say uh, an, in, an interesting point from, uh, from us doing our carbon, carbon footprint and life cycle analysis of our products. As a manufacturing organization, we really tended to focus on, on our impact and, and we know we use energy and we, we wanted to reduce that. But when we did the entire life cycle assessment, right from the uh, forest all the way through to the end of use, for products such as hand towels, napkins, wipers, we, we discovered that it was actually uh, one of the one of the impacts was putting those products into landfill, uh, where they would reduce uh, where they produce uh, uh, carbon harmful gases. So what uh, what we did is we worked out that if we were to compost these hand towels, uh, that could seriously reduce the carbon impact of a of a hand towel. Uh, so once we'd understood that, uh, we were the first to to get our products uh, accredited so that they can be composted in a, in a home or industrial environment. And I think uh, I think that was a really interesting finding from a life cycle analysis. Absolutely, yes, it was definitely definitely a surprise and certainly something that we push really every day um, with our customers that the biggest impact we can make with the product like hand towel or napkins is actually to, to compost it rather than sending it off to landfills. So you just don't know what you're going to find until, until you do the work, which I'm sure, Jeff, you're really familiar with doing this across lots of industries with lots of different products. Okay, well, that kind of wraps up the conversation in relation to organisations and corporations and what they can do about climate change. But um, each episode, we really want to end off by bringing it back to a bit more of a personal level and a home level. Um, so a closing question to, to both of you. And again, we'll start off with you, Jeff. Like, why are you passionate about sustainability and what do you do at home to be sustainable to help inspire people? Yeah, I guess I've kind of been interested in sustainability my whole life, but it was really, I guess, at university when I got quite um, interested in it and started learning more about it as a kind of discipline, as a concept and something that I might be interested in doing, um, you know, for my career. And so, you know, I did a um, PhD focused on sustainable product design and lifecycle assessment because it kind of came out of that, you know, interest sort of spurred from my undergraduate studies as a, as a university student. And then kind of beyond that, then I, I moved to Europe and did quite a lot of work across, um, you know, the UK and the Nordics and, um, and Central Europe and, and some work in North America. And, you know, I think through working with those kinds of companies and, and seeing what, what people were doing globally, that was a really, you know, powerful insight in trying to use business as a force for good and, 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 and sustainability and achieve some, some positive things. So I think that's kind of like my, my background to it. And um, I guess, you know, beyond that, I've always been interested in hiking and going out in the forest and that kind of thing. So it's kind of like a personal thing as well. In terms of what I do at home, one of the things that you might see in the background, my blurred background, I'm working from home today. I really do try to minimize the amount of um, travel that I do. So, um, and when I do travel, I try to catch the train, try to walk everywhere. Like if you're looking at as an individual where your footprint is, it's often things like your diet, it's how you get around, it's where you live, how you heat your buildings, that kind of thing. And so focus on, you know, using, uh, trying to minimize those things. So, you know, if I if I travel, can I, can I catch the train? Can I walk? Um, can I not, not travel in the first place? Um, and then in terms of diet, you know, can you eat less meat? Can you eat more vegetable protein, that kind of thing? 
Um, and then other things you can do around the house, you know, like a compost and those kinds of things as well. But I think there's some of those big ticket items where I guess taking my professional career and bringing it to my personal life, it's about working out where the big ticket items are first and how you can reduce those things. I don't, I guess COVID also um, put a stop to some of the many, you know, the, the long distance holidays um, and probably made, you know, me think a bit more about um, long distance travel as well, because the impact of flying a long way is, is you know, it's very large from a carbon footprint perspective. So can you do things closer to home and, and that kind of thing? So I definitely don't travel anywhere near as much as I used to, and that helps to bring my carbon footprint down as well. And, you know, that's great insight, Jeff, because I think a lot of people want to do the right thing, but they don't have your technical scientific background about where, where the biggest impacts are. So thank you for sharing that. I'm sure that's really helpful for a lot of individuals. And what about you, Ian? What's, what gets you passionate about sustainability? Well, I think I think it's ha having children. You, 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 that they're very passionate about sustainability themselves. That can't help but rub off, uh, rub off on you. I've done a lot of work in my career on energy saving, but but to be honest, it was more on a financial, for a financial <laughs> reason. It was to try to make the product cheaper. Uh, I now see the benefits that we that we can improve the the sustainability credentials of a product as well. Uh, so I think I think everyone wants to reduce their impact. Um, I certainly do. Like Jeff, I spend a lot of time outdoors, so I naturally do want to protect my my local environment. Uh, in terms of uh, what I try to do myself, I, I I've I've got really interested in uh, life cycle analysis, and so I I uh, you, you can use very simple online tools to to do a very basic life cycle assess life cycle assessment of yourself. And, and how you live and how you work and and so I've done that and that's that's thrown up a you know a couple of easy wins uh I mean I know I think everyone recycles composts all that kind of stuff but um just eating uh non-meat um meals a couple of times a week that that can make a really significant difference uh and and I I do have to come to the work I I can't work at home all the time so I, I the majority of my time is in the paper mill uh, but I carpool um so that straight away reduces by half my, my carbon footprint for, for traveling to work. Great. Awesome inspiration. And actually, I might get you to share that link of doing your own um, personal life cycle assessment, and we can link it to the notes uh, for this episode, because I think that, that sounds like a great tip. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation uh, with, with both of you. Um, and if you have enjoyed this episode, stay tuned as we'll have three more to come. And in our next episode, we'll talk about all things in relation to waste reduction and what uh, companies can do around that. So thanks very much, guys. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much.